Hello, everybody. I'm Gordon Spence. I'm uh, the Indigenous Community Facilitator with the uh, Legacy of Hope Foundation. And uh, recently, we've been starting a new project called uh, uh, Indigenous Roots and Hoots, exploring and discussing and interviewing people about uh, Indigenous uh, roots and and uh, fun stuff and uh, interesting stuff, cultural arts and uh, activities, skills, knowledge. Uh, people, Aboriginal people do so. Uh, uh, yeah, that's uh, kind of what we've been doing, and uh, this is actually our first first podcast. And uh, I'm very happy that uh, we've, we we were able to get Teresa on on this one, and uh, we look forward to uh, so many more things to do in the future on, on this project. Thank you again, Teresa, for uh, for being involved in this. Okay, hello, Teresa. Hello, how are you? Hi, good, good. I'm here with Teresa Edwards. Uh, she's the executive director uh, of the Legacy of Hope Foundation, and she's also our in-house legal counsel. Uh, Teresa is actually going to be our first interview, just podcasts, and uh, uh, just a quick intro about Teresa. She has two daughters, one son, and a granddaughter, a new granddaughter, yeah. recently. Uh, she's a recent grandmother. Teresa is from Listigouche, Quebec. She's a Mi'kmaq First Nation. Uh, she's a great boss and a caring <laughs> person. I'm not to say this. <laughs> Tireless worker. And, you know, she's always on the go and doing great stuff. So, uh, okay, Teresa, <clears throat> we're going to ask you some questions about uh, what you do. Maybe uh, we can start off by. Uh, uh, giving us a brief biography of yourself and uh, and I'll talk a little bit about the Legacy of Hope Foundation and uh, you know, its di different departments. Uh, but first, you know, talk about a little bit about yourself and uh, get into the Legacy of Hope Foundation. What an honor to be the first podcast that we're launching at the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Thanks so much, Gordon. Um, we'll be having our president on soon since uh, he's not really available right now because of the uh, pandemic, but um, we'll have him on soon. So just a little bit of uh, background about me. As you mentioned, I'm Mi'kmaq First Nation from a band member of Listigouche. And uh, I usually go home, try to go home a few times a year. And this past year is the first time I haven't gone home a lot. And it's because my daughter was expecting and then because I've had my granddaughter that's I always say I fell down the Olivia hole of uh, my granddaughter becoming a grandma. My whole world is surrounded around her. So, but I do miss uh, getting back home and the beauty of the Listigouche River and seeing all my family um, and having no Wi-Fi <laughs> and be being in that beauty of the yeah. mountains and trees. It's it's uh, there's nothing like coming home. Um, as you mentioned, I, I have three da uh, two daughters and my son. I have three kids. Um, before becoming a lawyer, I was a preschool teacher. I was a counselor for drug and alcohol addiction. Uh, yeah, I did all. I worked with uh, adolescents and youth who who were in conflict with the law. So I have a vast background. And then I finally decided to. Uh, go to law school and become a lawyer. And I was always passionate about indigenous rights and 
advancing the rights of our people, both uh, in Canada and internationally at the United Nations. So that's really what a lot of my career has been about, is advancing the rights of Indigenous people. So I went against the government of Canada for 15 years at different UN um, forums to uh, raise the concerns that were impacting Indigenous people uh, and women in particular. So high rates of violence, um, high rates of uh, women going missing and being murdered, uh, the high rates of poverty, high rates of single parenting uh, young Indigenous women, um, trying to improve the situation. And for the most part, I, I've always found that education is key. Education is the key that changed my life um, and helped me to go a totally different path. It was a big part of that journey um, in providing me safety, security, economic uh, well-being, all because of education. So for me, I'm a big proponent, a big uh, advocate for um, education, educating people to make change. Um, so that, that's a lot of my uh, history. And about uh, three and a half years ago, I had heard about the Legacy of Hope Foundation. And uh, I had looked, just put my, my curriculum, uh, my CV into uh, Indeed, just to see what was going on, because I had been working in private practice. And then I had taken time off work to take care of my mom, who, who lived with me for almost 20 years. Uh, with my family, and she was dying of cancer. So I took off work to take care of her. And then when I was ready to go back, that's when I put my my resume out. And I got a bunch of different offers, but one of them was to apply for Legacy of Hope Foundation. About 10 years ago, I had said it would be my dream job to work at a foundation that educates people and builds better relationships between Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people. And I had no idea <laughs> Legacy of Hope Foundation existed and that it, its mission and mandate was to do just that. So as you can imagine, when I found out about um, LHF four years ago and I was suggested to apply to that position, I applied and went through the interviews. And when I was successful in getting the position for the, the uh, foundation, I was so driven to see the foundation expand and succeed because it was, it was perfectly in line with the, the vision and dream that I had always wanted to, to be a part of. So it seemed like it was destiny or it was a divine intervention, you know? So for me, the work I do there isn't work. It's my passion. And it seems like the staff that I have uh, have been attracted to come work and stay at the foundation are all similar-minded. You know, like you, Gord, you work so well with people and you make everyone feel at ease. And then we have uh, Irene, who's very successful with the exhibitions and curatorial projects, and Jane and her team who are driven in education and research and um, Casey and doing all the HR and uh, fundraising and, you know, just well-being for the overall company and Shannon in finance the, and all of the, the teams under them. We've just uh, created this amazing momentum of really good people who are like-minded with wanting to see change happen 
in uh, Canada. So I'm really excited and proud to be working with this group of almost 20 people um, who are making good changes going forward, you know, for Indigenous people in Canada. Oh, great. <laughs> There's a lot to say there. <laughs> you don't have to ask it. Yeah. No, it's good. I kind of expected this anyway, so... You mentioned, uh, I mean, I'm just going to just touch on something you said. Uh, uh, just before you said the word destiny, you know, I would, that's the word that came to mind. Uh, it's like it was meant to happen. This has kind of been like your destiny. And that's how I think Aboriginal people, many of us think that way, you know, that things are meant to happen uh, the way they are. And, uh, you know, you just have to take on the challenge as it comes to you. So, uh I, I really think it was your destiny to be here. So, and uh, um, uh, the Legacy of Hope Foundation. This is the 20th anniversary. Uh, are there any uh, are there any celebration plans or special events plans uh, coming up this year? Uh, well, what we're trying to do is every week we try to release a different press release highlighting one of the either the educational resources that we have, the curriculum, or our catalog, or one of the exhibitions. So we're trying to keep our communications up, especially even though we're all working from home during the pandemic, we're continuing to work full time. So we still do the media that way. And we are looking to have, um, we'll be launching new exhibitions and possibilities of having virtual launches. We're having uh, this podcast as a celebration of our 20 year anniversary. Um, we're, looking at pr producing a short clip about the LHF um, and possibly a coffee table book to commemorate uh, the anniversary. And it will have uh, messages of hope and reconciliation by Canadians across the country inside this uh, coffee table book. And we would have some receptions and gatherings once the, the restrictions have been lifted from the pandemic to celebrate. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Look forward to that. Uh, in the past, uh, Indigenous peoples faced epidemics of diseases brought by European settlers. And uh, they faced social, economical peoples, including the institution of the residential schools, being forced off traditional lands, suppression of language and culture. It was a time that must have been real surreal and unpredictable and scary. How do you feel about that time? And how do you feel that, you know, uh, uh, how do you feel about uh, what's happened then, how people have handled it, Indigenous people have handled these kind of situations, and how do you feel about that today? Um, well, for me, I think the one word that I think about all the time is resilience. And even that we are in a time of a pandemic right now or a time of uncertainty, as people often say. I feel like we kind of have an advantage as Indigenous people because we have lived, our ancestors, you know, and, and my mother and yourself, Gordon, you know, have lived through so many of the hardships uh, that were brought about by colonization. And we're not talking hundreds of years old, right? We're talking... Um, my mom went to residential school and her siblings went to residential school. Um, and then many generations of our people went to day school, which was uh, similarly abusive and, and uh, terrible conditions there. And 
the fact that we did overcome plagues and things that tried to destroy us, uh, the Indian Act, you know, things that wouldn't allow us to have to, to prosper economically on reserve or to leave the reserve or any of these things, despite and making our religion or our spirituality, our culture, our language, making it illegal and banned. And uh, we took it underground. We continued. We were strong and resilient and steadfast. And to me, that's something you know, no matter what was thrown at us, every attempt against to get rid of Indigenous people has failed. And in fact, they say in 20 years, our population will be higher, you know, five times that higher of any other population. So not only did we survive, but we will thrive. And that gives me a lot of hope and a lot of faith with what's happening even today, you know, um, because we've already overcome so much that we will continue to overcome. Exactly. Um, there's a lot of uh, areas that we can talk about resiliency uh, about Aboriginal people. At the National Gallery in Ottawa, there is an exhibit of Indigenous art, and one artist uses the term survivancy. It's a combination of survival skills and resiliency I wonder what aspects of Indigenous culture and beliefs were used to sustain Indigenous people in the past. What do you think about this uh, resiliency and, and how it's helped people, uh, uh, First Nations people, Indigenous people, survive? How does that affect today's environment? I love the term survivancy. It really does accurately uh, combine, you know, being a survivor and uh, surviving and resiliency together, which really does describe Indigenous people, because despite all the different things that were thrown at us um, to try and basically get rid of us, you know, uh, whether it was the Indian Act or residential schools, day schools, um, 60 scoop, or, you know, from the blankets with riddled with disease, no matter what was done to try and get rid of us, Indigenous people are the fastest growing population than any other nation in the world. And um, we're growing at a rate of four times that of other people. And I think one of our strengths is that we are one of our cultural traditions, practices is about being in the moment and not um, <clears throat> and not constantly worrying. Um, although everything we do, we know is all interconnected and affects um, future generations. And we think of it in that way. We also get through things as they're happening. And uh, it's not really a cultural uh tradition or trait to be worrying we're really about giving thanks for what we have in the now and i think that and along with humor uh, have contributed greatly to indigenous people's survival through all the things that people have experienced as uh, survivors and we are extremely mm -hmm. resilient so it's a good term for us for sure and it'll be the same through this uh, circumstance that we're facing now indigenous people it's just another thing on the long list of things that we've had to survive 
and uh, learn to thrive with, right? So I think Indigenous people are taking steps to protect their nations, their communities, um, and their people through this pandemic in the same way that we always have in the past, just tailoring it in a, a slightly different details. Yeah, for sure. Um, when I think of that word myself, you know, uh, I think of, uh, of uh, what our people have gone through, like uh, the residential schools, you know, and that went on for over 100 years and uh, the high rate of incarceration in jails for Aboriginal people. And, and uh, more recently, uh, the high rate of foster care, which really created a big industry for you know, non-Aboriginal people, which is crazy. Um, and of course, you know, the ongoing, you know, poor living conditions that our people have to live under. Touching on another area of uh, Aboriginal people, uh, the perspective of uh, how Aboriginal people see time, uh, which I think is much longer than uh, the mainstream society's short-term vision of, uh, of time. And, uh, I guess our ancestors must have measured time through seven generations back and ahead. So uh, uh, have you seen the uh, pandemic unfolding around us? How, how, does, uh, how do, do you think that uh, these two relate and how are they connected? Well, not just in relation to the pandemic, but just generally, um, as I was mentioning previously, we're about living in the moment and uh, dealing with what is in front of us. But it's, it's balancing that with taking into account what our ancestors and our elders have to say about something and the teachings that we've been given and having the forethought to look at what would benefit our future generations. So whether it be as caregivers of Mother Earth, as caregivers of the land, waters, air, uh, any of the four-leggeds, or even all of our people or everyone on Mother Earth, you know, two-leggeds, um, we have this vision. So I don't know that it's a time-related vision as much as an eagle-eye uh, vision where we look at things from a, a huge, broad perspective. I always give the example that I worked for the government for 15 years and I would, you know, I worked with eight different ministers and I would continuously try to get them to, and I would make the economic arguments to get them to do things in a good way in relation to Indigenous people about relationship building or having it be community-based, community-paced and saying if you get the buy-in from Indigenous people, it'll increase the success and likelihood of the the project or the legislation being fulfilled and happening. Like it's a win-win for everyone, even if you have to put money in the beginning up front. Um, but there was minister after minister, didn't matter the government in power, there's always a resistance to saying, no, that's too much money to spend now. But then what inevitably always ends up happening is that uh, there's a resistance and indigenous people won't accept it if it's not done legally or proper consultation and engagement and then the legislation falls on on the order paper, dies on the order paper, you know, um, and it doesn't get passed through Parliament, and it costs hundreds of millions of dollars. Whereas if the investment was made in the first place, and the relationships were built, and people were uh, working in a good way in partnership all along at the start, it would have saved us all um, millions of dollars and 
time and ensured more success. So I'm continuously hopeful that people are going to learn from past mistakes and uh, improve relationships. That's why I work where I work, right? I'm all about improving relationships between Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people. So my hope is that we'll be able to come to work collectively um, for the betterment of all Canadians. And now in this time of a pandemic, we can learn so much from Indigenous teachings, Indigenous medicine, um, using medicines to help care for, you know, keep ourselves in good health and um, just taking care of nature during this time as well. You know, um, there's a lot of different things that we can we can uh, do positively during this time. In Indigenous culture, who held the wisdom? Um, elders, women, youth, uh, or do you think it was a combination of the, all of them, the whole uh, community? Because I know that, you know, um, uh, I know elders hold a lot of wisdom and, and women as well, and youth, and of course adults, uh, men as well. And uh, I think a lot of it is, uh, is uh, a combination of, of being together as a community. Uh, wisdom, I think, is, uh, uh, is to me anyway, it seems like it's, uh, it's a community thing. And when you lose one segment of a community, like, uh, like what happened with residential schools, they sent away you know, kids to go to school in a foreign, foreign land, the communities lost something there, uh, whether, whether it's wisdom or, you know, a, a different perspective in their community. Uh, uh, so how do you feel about this, uh, talk about wisdom and how, how it affects the community? Well, I can only speak to teachings that I have been shared with me. And as you know, we have, um, you know, there's over 600 communities within Canada alone, over 55 nations and languages. So of course the teachings are, and uh, beliefs are gonna vary from nation to nation. And then there's of course overlap and similarities that are you know, run through all nations. I think that we, we do have uh, things in common as well. Um, but for me, some of the teachings that I was given was that children come from the spirit world and so when they're infants, they're very wise and all-knowing because they were with Creator recently. And they come from spirit world and as they get older and are able to speak. Um, you know, they hold a lot of information that is very valuable. And if we're not in balance, then we can lose out on the messaging that children or the contribution that our youth um, have to give to our nation. And then seniors or and and uh, elderly they are getting closer to the spirit world and they've lived a whole lifetime of experience so for us we're taught they hold um, a lot of wisdom from their life experience and because they're going to be going to spirit world soon and then if there are people who've dedicated their a good portion of their life whether it's the last 20 years or 30 years or may only be early on their helping journey but there are knowledge keepers and there are elders who are recognized by the community as medicine people and, and uh, bundle carriers or um, 
holders of certain teachings or traditions, and they have a special role as well within the nations. And then depending on the nation as well, women are water, uh, you know, caretakers of the water and uh, we're made up of water and we're the life giver. So there's an important role that women have. And of course, men could be the role of warriors or protectors. And we've lost a lot of that. A lot of those roles that were traditionally held within our nations were severely, severely interrupted for not only 100 years, you're talking seven generations, where it's more than 150 years, where our systems of family roles, structures, governance, clan systems, justice systems, trade, uh, the way that we interacted from nation to nation, rules of engagement, everything was disrupted with the Indian Act, the imposition of the Indian Act, the criminalization, um, the creation of reserves and removal of our traditional territories, um, the criminalization of ceremony and speaking our language. And as you mentioned, of course, the seven generations of children that went through the residential school system. And as that changed from federal control, it just rolled right into uh, child and family services and provincial responsibility. So it wasn't like everything stopped in 97 when the last school or 96 when the last federal school closed because there was still residential schools open till 97 in the north. Um, it was just, you know, territorial run. And then, of course, there were day schools and which that have been, you know, uh, proven in, in courts for years and years and years and enough evidence has been amassed uh, collectively to warrant a settlement and a class action. So uh, for the, the uh, 60 scoops of children apprehended and, and fostered or adopted out to non-Indigenous families, like they call it the 60 scoop, but that's gone on. So you had, you know, the, it was all, all collectively and interwoven, um, the Indian Act, putting us on reserve lands, not allowing anyone to do business with us, not, allow, not allowing us to travel in our traditional uh, territories or, you know, arresting people who would try and interact with any Indigenous people. They, we could be fined for uh, or jailed for trespass, um, all of these things. And like I was saying, the 60s scoop, it wasn't something that just happened in the 60s. It's continued to happen. There's still today more children in care in the foster care system across Canada than there were, so more than 150,000 children went to residential school. So now there's over 150,000 children, Indigenous children in care, and many of which, a high percentage, are not with Indigenous families. So you see there's all these things that have disrupted the roles of Indigenous people that we once knew and what gave us balance in our um, communities. So for me, I have the teaching that everyone had something strong to contribute and everyone was necessary for the whole circle. Like you said, the whole community, the whole nation's input about what was better or what was good for the community. Um, and we were taught chiefs were just echo makers. They weren't the leader or the political person. They were merely someone that was appointed by their community or nation to bring 
whatever decision the community had come to collectively, they would appoint this chief to go be an echo maker. So he would echo what was told by the, his people to other communities. And that was the, the teaching that, that I was given. So as you can see, like I spoke about the youth, you know, um, the, the adolescents were warriors or strongly contributing to uh, doing the work and the women as caregivers and men as providers and hunters and then the elders and knowledge keepers and seniors. So there was, a, a, you know, an intrinsic and important role for everyone. But unfortunately, because of all of the colonial acts of oppression that disrupted those roles, um, we're in the situation that we are today, where people are returning to their language, returning to their culture, returning and finding their families. So many people have been displaced. So many of our, our um, traditional languages, systems have been disrupted. So it's a, a return and a reclaiming and our restoring to our balanced way of life and, and doing that in a time where things are still chaotic and there's still disruption and there's still racism and all of that. So it's, it's a work in progress. And that's why I always say, you know, if there were a message I'd want to get to Canadians, what I would want to say to them the most, why I'm so passionate about educating people about the things that have happened to Indigenous people and continue to happen to Indigenous people. It's not 100 years old. These things are still happening. There's still children in care. We still have 115 communities without clean water. You still have... Uh, communities living in poverty in third world uh, conditions when we're a country as rich as Canada. All, uh, we don't have the same levels of education as other uh, non-Indigenous children have in their schools. The list is on and on. So the reason I'm so passionate about educating P Canadians about that is because it gives them an understanding, it gives them a respect they start, if they learn Indigenous history, they see the value and contribution and amazing um, talents and contribution and foundation that Indigenous people have contributed to what is now Canada and what we continue to contribute, whether it's music, medicine, law, uh, you know, design, arts, any area um, Indigenous people have made and continue to make a huge contribution to society. I want to educate people about that so they have an understanding, they have a historic knowledge, and then they can start to build empathy and have the realization that even if it wasn't Indigenous people, if you were to take any nation of people and do all the things that have happened to Indigenous people, you would have the same socioeconomic consequences that Indigenous people have. So it's not that we're systemically broken or that there's something inherently wrong with Indigenous people. We were thriving people before all these colonial acts came into play and continue in, to be in play that disrupted our systems. And despite all that, not only are we surviving and have survivancy and resiliency, you know, like we spoke about earlier, but we are thriving you know, my reserve alone, there's five women lawyers and there's two men in uh, law school. Indigenous women have the highest rate of education, uh, you know, 
going. So there's all, there are uh, things that people are accomplishing and we have knowledge keepers that know more about medicine than any pharmacist could possibly know. And their, their uh, knowledge is, is um, immeasurable, you know? So I, for me, I just would, I feel it's truly, you know, if a Canadian were to walk a mile in our moccasins, they would have a whole new understanding about what we as a peoples have uh, experienced. And it's no wonder that these issues are uh, happening and Canadians need to look at their part and what they can do to address the racism, the injustices and to be an ally. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think that, uh, uh, all of what you said, you know, uh, we know it, you know, uh, as Indigenous people know it. Uh, and uh, it's just too bad that uh, not enough Canadians understand what the Aboriginal people have gone through. Uh, they only see, you know, uh, what they see on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and I guess that's part of uh, government's fault not teaching about the history of Aboriginal people uh, and their contributions to this country. Uh, but I think slowly that's changing and uh, organizations such as the Legacy Hope Foundation are making a difference in that area. And uh, and hopefully, uh, and I can see, and there is hope in this, and I see that uh, things are slowly changing and, uh, and uh, there is a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. So uh, Always. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I'll just uh, leave it at that before I start rambling. Thanks, Lord. Okay, thank you, Teresa. There was one other question, you know, that I forgot to ask you, and uh, what was it? I don't know if you want to. I don't know if you want. I, I, it didn't flow in with the uh, the, the last time we spoke, and uh, we kind of jumped over it because we kind of went on to other stuff. And what was I, it? It was about uh, the question was like, how did legends of creation and teaching sustain Indigenous people and give them hope? Well, I think you kind I, of answered in another question, like uh, in another statement, you know? Yeah, when I said that all of our nations, we all have different teachings, even creation stories, right? It would be completely different for someone who's Ojibwe to someone who is uh, Salish or, um, you know, Mi'kmaq, or we might have similarities, but again, we all do have separate stories. For us, we've had oral traditions for thousands and thousands of years since time immemorial, and those have been passed on within our families, within our communities, within our nations, and they've given us teachings on survival. So, mm-hmm. for example, Listigudj, my community, that means disobey your father, and the name came from children disobeying their parents uh, and going to play on the river or on the ice and drowning, right? If they fell through the ice. So language and uh, the little story or the meaning behind it can hold uh, a lot of teachings for people. And so it's a, it's a well-known, uh, I know there's the Inuit story that uh, I, I'll probably say it wrong, but like the Kualupluit, I think it's called, or there's a certain name about the ice monster, right? And like, so these, these legends or these stories that we have, the reason that we have them is so that we can tell the kids and that gives them a healthy fear 
of going near the cracks in the ice or going near the ice or the river or the water um, for their own safety. So they've much like people have, and I'm not, I don't want to offend anyone when I say like stories because some people say it's historic events in the Bible. um, But just to say the legends or the moral um, lesson in a Bible story, Bible story or recounting, however you want to frame it, um, has a little moral or a little teaching for people, just as that the Bible and, and other religious books do in our spirituality or in our cultures and languages. I believe we have words and creation stories and legends that teach people about uh, whether it's healthy fear or healthy respect of medicines or territories or staying away from certain places or how and when to, um, you know, uh, creation stories of how a a beaver got its tail or whatever the story might be. It's a a great way to be able to pass on these teachings to the next generation. And we do it in a way that is interesting and uh, often has humor and it will help them remember it, and they can retell that story to the handing over valuable teachings to the next generation to come. Yeah, there's so many uh, um, stories, myths, legends uh, in all our nations, uh, First Nations, uh, Métis, Inuit. Uh, I guess they're all, you know, they're there to serve a purpose, and uh, they're not just made up uh, for no for no reason at all. Um, and you know, like you mentioned, uh, I think it was the Kilapilowit, uh, the, uh, the, <laughs> the Inuit sea monster. That yeah. uh, my kids actually had those books, and uh, yeah. and uh, and really they were you know the sea monsters that lived in the, under the ice, and, uh, and really you know talks about, you know, just made children kind of be wary of going close to the ice, so for right. their safety, you know. So, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there was one other thing that uh, I should have told you, that maybe, you, maybe you're aware of it, uh, but, you know, Roots and Hoots is, uh, is, uh, is here to uh, educate people and, and, to, uh, and to let people know uh, about our culture and uh, various, so many aspects of our culture, uh, our different cultures that are alive today and, uh, you know, and have been carried on through an oral tradition, stories and uh, legends. And uh, and that's the roots of uh, Roots and Hoots. And uh, the other part, uh, the second part is the Hoots part. And, uh, and uh, when I, uh, in reference to Hoots, it's, uh, it's, it's about funny stories and uh, laughter and humor, and uh, you know, Aboriginal people have so much humor, and uh, uh, it's it's one of the commonalities that we have, I guess, as Aboriginal people across the country. And and Métis are similar; uh, they like to joke and laugh as well, and uh, and Inuit uh, to a certain extent, but they're a little more subdued, and they have slightly different humor. But they are funny people as well, you know. They like to. You like to have fun, uh, and I was wondering if you had a uh, to end this uh, podcast. Uh, we ask our guests to uh, if they have a joke or a funny story to tell. Do you have one? <laughs> a joke or a funny story? Wow. Hmm. 
on the spot. I don't know. I might have to think about that one. No, that's okay. You know. Uh, I have to think of a joke. Oh my goodness. Something that is relevant too. Totally caught me off guard there. Oh, Gordon. okay, okay. It's all right. Don't worry about it. No, no, it's okay. It's okay. Don't you have, do you have any jokes that I could tell? <laughs> what about the, uh, what happened to the, uh, the Indian who drank 200 cups of tea? He drowned in his teepee. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. There, like, you like, <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. I like that one, Gordon. Okay. <laughs> I tell my kids that. They used to, I used to tell my kids that when they were small. You know, I get a kick out of that all the time. Yeah. Okay. okay. My father used to say, Do you think the rain will hurt the rhubarb? I don't think so. Not if it's Why? in cans. <laughs> <laughs> There's my joke. <laughs> hey, <your> joke. <laughs> okay. All I right. know you have your joke. I know you have some jokes. <laughs> I just kind of caught you off guard there. I, mean, I thought you, you read the, You reviewed the letter. You reviewed the thing. I thought you remembered the last part, but that's uh, okay. With with indigenous culture, though. Um, there's so much. Uh, there's so much there. There's so much uh, going on that you know. Uh, uh, there's so much that's happening to uh, our cultures, our our various indigenous cultures and communities. Uh, who do you think, like in 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 in, uh, in indigenous First Nations communities? Uh, I'll ask you that because you are First. I'm in First Nations. We can't really speak for uh, Métis or Inuit. Uh, uh, in terms of who holds the wisdom, do you think in your community, in in uh, in, 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 in in an Aboriginal First Nations community, elders, do you think automatically, you know, you think about them as holding the knowledge and uh, and the wisdom, but there's also women and the youth. You know, they they yeah. contribute to this kind of wisdom as well in different ways. What do you what do you think? Yeah, I know for sure. I mean. Like I said, my mom lived with our family for almost 20 years and I was five months pregnant with my son at the time she moved in with us. And, you know, th that was an incredible blessing to have her in the house and help with the kids and help with um, doing household chores or anything. You know, it was pretty amazing to have um, a second mom in the house. You know, it was wonderful. And... Uh, my mom didn't have high education because she ran away from residential schools uh, over and over. And then they finally said she could, she no longer was a ward of the state, so she didn't have to go to school. But she used to read like a book probably once a week, once a day, once every other day. She taught herself how to knit since she was four years old. Um, she was an amazing cook. She could bake. She sewed. She Oh, like unbelievably um, talented and one of my even though I had five university degrees my biggest accomplishment was beating my mom at Scrabble <laughs> <laughs> because she was very knowledgeable she spoke full Mi'kmaq she spoke yeah. French and understood French and English and you know 
uh, would play me Scrabble in English and could beat me even with all of my degrees. So when I finally won, it was a big deal. But yeah. uh, so I all and I grew up with her and all of my aunts always talking, and it was very clear from a very young age that respect your elders and your. Um, you know, you take care of your elders and, and they are going to the spirit world and they've lived a full life. So they have a lot of wisdom and a lot to offer. So my mom was completely the matriarch of our family. And so as my father was um, at her side, you know, he was a good man and he passed away 20 years prior to her. Um, so all the kids really rallied around to make, you know, sure she was the matriarch and well cared for. So that there was that aspect. The other aspect is to learn the value of children and because they've come from the spirit world, they're all knowing and wise and have so much to teach us. You know, it's like when we get older between in our twenties and thirties is when we forget ourselves or if we, if we're not in the knowledge of the spirit world. We can learn a lot from kids. We can learn a lot from our elders. Um, which I think is also a, a different philosophy from a lot of other cultures. I mean, uh, a lot of immigrant and uh, racialized communities, they too have similar beliefs to we, what we have about their youth and, and uh, elderly, um, but it's not the case everywhere. Right. You know uh, what's, um, what's happening today around the world uh, with this virus going around and really restricting people's mobility and doing things and, you know, kind of really slowing down the world. Uh, and when people I talk to, it almost sounds like uh, it's kind of like divine intervention or Mother Earth intervening and just telling us to slow down and, uh, you know, and uh, uh, be nicer to each other, uh, treat the world better, treat Mother Earth better, you know, and spend time with each other. Uh, and that's... Uh, this used to happen a lot in Aboriginal culture, uh, probably other cultures as well, where uh, families uh, would live together as one big unit. Uh, grandparents would would live with uh, with their children, and uh, and children would move in with their with their parents. And so, you know, many many even exist today in the Aboriginal communities. Uh, people living in there because of you know uh, the limited uh, space available for housing in most Aboriginal communities. Uh, People are, you know, uh, living together in big families and, you know, really, really being families and learning about each other. And, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, we don't see that happen too much today in, uh, in, in today's society, uh, especially in the South. Uh, so I just uh, I just kind of thought I'd mention that. Uh, uh, and on that note, uh, the connection, you know, with Mother Earth is apparent in many areas of our lives. How is that connection a source of comfort for you today? Uh, for me, as I mentioned earlier, I feel connected to everything, whether it's the air, water, fire, trees, animals. Um, and I think every human, every living thing is connected to that energy, to that light. It can't help but feel better. Um, I don't think I know anyone if they were healthy, if they weren't outside, you know what I mean? That would feel better, immensely better um, once being in, in nature and then uh, seeing the change um, in their 
physical or mental well-being, you know, as much as it is when they're out in nature, whether it's in the sunshine. So for some people, it's the rain, whether it's be being on a mountain, around rocks, around ice, around trees, you know, whatever it is, um, that life force, I think it, it energizes all of us. Yeah, for sure. I find that a lot of people are actually going back to the land uh, uh, at this time to, uh, to find healing. And uh, I guess now to get away from this uh, coronavirus that's going around. And uh, uh, yeah, more and more people are going back to the land and connecting you know, to their roots uh, 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 in this day and age when there's so much happening around us. Um, at the time of contact with the European settlers, and despite oppression and exploitation, indigenous people helped settlers survive when they first arrived here. Do you think that a similar situation exists today? Um, I think society is starting to look to indigenous ways, and they have been for some time, to learn from us. And there's definitely a shift. If you look at pharmaceutical companies, right, they've completely shifted to the whole homeopathic herbs where we've been using medicines for more than 15,000 years or people say since time immemorial, right? So you have Western philosophy, uh, Western uh, medicine is now turning to making money on plants and all homeopathic medicines and teas and calling it, you know, indigenous this or native uh, celestial tea, or I'm just making the name up, but you know what I mean? People will lend themselves to uh, thinking it's indigenous even because it bring, it means somehow it's healthier for you. So obviously there's a value in uh, indigenous traditional knowledge and, our way of life if people are um, selling it as a commercial uh, product as a healthy organic way to live you know it's starting to happen yeah. yeah yeah people are starting to exploit that yeah yeah or and explore it right like a, I think you know elders have said to me over the years there's no one preventing anyone from coming to do ceremony with any of us um, the issue is to, we have to be certain that um, we're sharing that knowledge with people in a good way, you know, right, right, yeah. and uh, not trying to profit financially off of that. You know, unfortunately, you see that happen where some people will take a, a hint of a ceremony and expand and create something that's nothing to do with the Indigenous culture and sell it you know, for 5,000 a week for this authentic experience. And it's not even an indigenous uh, group that's doing it. But um, mm -hmm. I definitely think there's value to our teachings and that there's a recognition of that. Yeah. The recent indigenous protests and blockades have been overshadowed by the pandemic that's going on right now. What do you think will happen next? Um, well, I believe they signed a deal, right? They've, they've, uh, the pipeline, I think, with Suetan, I believe they, I saw, I haven't checked this week, but last week they were coming to some kind of a special deal. Um, 
for me, I guess it's hierarchy of needs, right? We're, we're addressing all these health risks at a global level. So we're all, you know, trying to survive together globally. So that takes priority um, of our needs. Once that need calms down, then we go to the other level of needs, you know, which are what we've been doing all along, you know, trying to address uh, human rights injustices, trying to address racism, trying to educate people, um, trying to make it part of the curriculum that children learn from kindergarten to grade 12 um, in a mandatory way about Indigenous history. Why do we want that? Well, we've seen that once we educate people about what happened in Indigenous history, they it prevents them from becoming racist or having stereotypic beliefs of or believing stereotypes about Indigenous people or um, and they have more compassion, empathy, understanding, and it's a complete shift in how their parents might have viewed Indigenous people because they're educated now. Yes, uh, I totally agree because uh, I see that happening and as, as growing up and, you know, as uh, uh, from the time I was a child till now, I've, uh, I've seen so much racism, I've felt it, it's been thrown at me so many times. And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, people not understanding each other, uh, uh, non-Native people, not understanding Native people, uh, what we've gone through and what we've, we've been through. And, and the fact that, you know, we're, we're, we're good people, we're not bad people, you know, and, uh, and uh, I think if, uh, like you say, you know, if it has to do with educating the public, and which is what we do, right? We, uh, we at the Legacy Hope Foundation, we try and... Uh, uh, information. We try to educate people about, you know, Aboriginal culture, the history, and what uh, what we've been through, uh, and all the contributions we've made to society. All the good things, right? We have so, so many. many, so many, so many, so many good good things, and also so many good people that have, you know, made big contributions to their communities, to to their province, to Canada, in you know, in all walks of life. So, mm-hmm. uh, what will uh, what do you think? Uh, you know, I mean, I know, I know that you know the pandemic has, uh, has has put the whole world pretty much in survival mode, and everything else is secondary. Legacy of Hope Foundation has been working on uh, reconciliation projects and uh, 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 putting a good effort forward and trying to get Canadians uh, to think about reconciliation. And uh, how do you think uh, uh, the Legacy of Hope Foundation will move forward on? On reconciliation, you know, and, uh, after after this pandemic is uh, is kind of died down. Well, some of the ways that we have done in the past, we're continuing to do because they're things that have worked for us. So anything that's worked well for us in the past, we're expanding on. And even though we're teleworking, we're all still working full time on uh, getting these resources um, completed and translated and designed and what have you. So they're still all going ahead. A lot of the work that we have done before was curriculum from grade seven to 12 specifically. Now we've expanded that to grade seven to adult and not only for high schools or junior high, but for workplaces. So government training, um, unions, uh, banks, anyone wanting to train 
all their employees were developing materials for adults uh, across every job that would be interested in um, educating their employees about Indigenous issues. And uh, so we're, we're expanding on that. And something that we've done that we hadn't done previously, so we're just doing right now and we've just uh, completed, is a kindergarten to grade six curriculum. So it's really starting to educate kids from the age of kindergarten. I always tell the story about one of the children who was uh, speaking about reconciliation. He was 12 in grade six. And he said he couldn't believe that it had to be only when he was 12 that he was first taught about residential school. And he was so frustrated that he was not taught at an earlier age about this, how it was not in any of his um, books prior to grade six. And that made me realize, you know, children are very strong, intelligent, and resilient as well. And they learn about the diary of Anne Frank. They, They learn about the Holocaust and other genocide. Um, and historic events that have human rights injustices at a very young age, just taught in an age-appropriate way. So why shouldn't we teach Indigenous history in an age-appropriate way for young children? To me, the sooner we reach them, the better. So that's something I'm really excited that we've completed our uh, Seeds of Change curriculum. It's um, being, it's almost, it's in its final edits and uh in translation and then that will be published for our 20 year anniversary and then we'll be working on other curriculum for kindergarten to grade six so that's one of the exciting things that's ongoing and another project that we were supposed to wrap up the end of march was the launch of our escaping exhibition and it's about children who escaped residential schools and their stories of resilience and um, to honor them So that was supposed to be launched at the end of March and it was delayed because of the pandemic. Uh, However, however, we've continued to finish the work and uh, do it remotely. So how that's going to shift is we'll have a, either a virtual launch um, or when things loosen up, we'll have a, a semi virtual launch or, you know, a public launch. We'll see how that goes, but uh, we've been completing all the um, deliverables for that, Uh, big project so we have the exhibition and an activity guide and curriculum that went along with um, that exhibition for for uh, teachers or adults to be able to learn from uh, when they go through that exhibition they can also do these side activities to support their learning in in different ways so that's two big projects and uh, a third big project that's continuing is uh, and you would know that this how to pronounce it better than me. I was I was going to say Wanishkatan. Is that how it's pronounced? It's Wanishkatan. Uh, Wanishkatan. Wanishkatan. Okay, Wanishkatan. there you go. Um, and uh, so that one is ongoing for another year. That's all about uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, commemorating them and the LGBTQ uh, plus two spirit. Um, groups, their families, and uh, bringing messages of uh, how we want to promote peace going forward, honoring those that we've lost. 
And um, so we're continuing now. We're going to have our first online regional session actually in May, at the beginning of May. So our uh, exhibitions team has been working on that community engagement using online methods. So yeah, a lot of exciting things that are still happening. And we're also producing our exhibition catalog and uh, it's, it's a catalog of exhibitions, but also contains our educational resources. Yes, uh, we do have a uh, uh, Legacy of Old Foundation has uh, how many exhibitions now? I think 18. Uh, yeah, we're 18, working right? on those other two that are almost, well, one is almost completed, the uh, escaping, it's just about done. Uh, so that'll be 19. And then the 20th one will be completed later this fall. Wanishkatan. 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 Yeah. So these exhibits, uh, maybe you could just touch a little bit about them uh, briefly. Uh, they're available for different organizations to host them. Uh, uh, it's, and you can order them through our catalog, uh, the National Exhibitions Catalog, Legacy of Hope yeah. Foundation. Yeah, they can go on our website, just legacyofhope.ca. They can, we have an info email, they can request it that way. They can go on our catalog and look through which exhibitions they're interested in hosting. Right now, everything is basically locked in place. Uh, but generally, when things aren't locked in place, um, hosts can contact us to borrow them. And it, they can borrow them for three days or for a year where they host the exhibition in either their friendship center, their high school, elementary school, parliament building, uh, you know, at a union conference for a week, whatever the location, they're able to borrow them for free. Uh, we only ask that they pay the cost of shipping the exhibition there and back. And if they can't afford that, we have a shipping grant that we offer. So we never like to turn anyone away who's interested in hosting one of our exhibitions. Right, right, okay. And also, uh, uh, you talk about uh, curriculum development and uh, the number of stuff, uh, different education material that Legacy Hope Foundation has produced over the years. Uh, you mentioned seeds of change and and uh, and and, uh, and others, other curriculum education, curriculum development projects that are under the Legacy Hope Foundation. Uh, and how would like how do uh, uh, these are obviously uh, available for uh, for schools. Uh, to 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 include their 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 regular curriculum, exactly. Uh, all right, and then and how would they go about getting this material? So on our website, we have a Shopify uh, site where people would go on and they can review the resource and see what age, uh, what are the points that it's covering, so it matches with every provincial territorial curriculum design we made sure we have teachers that and curriculum developers that work with us to ensure that it meets all the targets that are required by teachers when teaching a segment of the curriculum so it will qualify for all of those targets and um, so they can go online read about it see the audience that they're trying to reach and they can purchase it for it's very reasonable Costs, or it could be a USB that's on sale for $24.99 that has the curriculum and it's always available in English and French. Um, or it could be a simple uh, communications flyer that we have, but that has an educational 
uh, Indigenous history timeline that's available for $4.99 type of thing. So there's a whole range and there's a lot of products that are available for free as well that they can order and they just have to pay the uh, basic shipping, which is a few dollars if they want, uh, because we inherited all the research reports from the Aboriginal Healing Foundation. So they can either download download those digitally from our website or they can uh, purchase them for they're free, but just pay the minimal shipping fee to have them sent to their community. And all of that's available on our website. And we're launching our new website as well in July for our 20 year anniversary. Just almost forgot that. <laughs> right on, right on. We look forward to that. I look forward to seeing that. Uh, just one other thing that I'd like you to touch on is uh, I know you do a lot of cultural sensitivity training to uh, organizations like the police associations. Can you just touch a little bit on that? Sure. Um, we offer workshops where staff, there's a menu of options. So they could do training for a full day, for a three-hour workshop, an hour workshop. Um, it varies. There's different prices and uh, different ones that are available. So two years ago and last year, I was the only trilingual uh, person in the office so when we got a contract to do all the teachers across Ontario uh, the training for them in French I was the one that had to do it so uh, but I was pretty excited because it involved training 500 French uh, teachers and that meant reaching thousands of students across Ontario Um, so we worked with the Ministry of Ontario of Education to do that and I provided that French training to them Uh, Other examples, I'm on three different police equity, there's a police equity council, and then we have our subgroups, so Indigenous community um, subgroup, we have uh, trending issues, communication issues, uh, and I uh, volunteer on all of those different boards, so it keeps us plugged in on what's happening within the national community and what's happening within the nation's capital Uh, working with other Indigenous organizations and other policing agencies and just trying to build better relationships. That's what it's always about, trying to build good relationships among uh, and between Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people in different sectors of uh, whether it's governments, whether it's uh, private organizations, like I said, unions or companies or policing agencies, we're always available. Um, Two of the staff just recently trained all of the uh, museum curators. Irene and and Jane did the uh, training for them on how to cover uh, difficult subject or disturbing subject matter. And they did that whole training session. So there's all kinds of training we have available and we just developed a huge category or huge menu of options of training for larger organizations such as banks, Bank of Montreal or Royal Bank or anything like that. So for corporations who want to have training for 30,000 employees, that's another whole area where we've developed training. Excellent. So if anybody's out there listening and uh, you want uh, some kind of sensitive cultural training for your organization uh you can always call us uh, and find us on our website legacywolf.ca and we'd be happy to uh to help you uh just before uh, we kind of end this uh 
uh, I have a, a, a last question, maybe two, Teresa, you can, uh, uh, and it's kind of a, a two-part question or to two people, or you can put it as one, one answer, uh, and then has to do with uh, a message for uh, Canadians, uh, a message for uh, young people uh, today, and uh, uh, what uh, what kind of advice or message would you have for Canadians? I guess if you want to speak to directly about the message for Canada and maybe our Aboriginal youth. Well, I think for. The message for Canada, I would want to say that we need to learn from the past. You know, I think we have to, I know that we have to acknowledge the past and the present and the ongoing discrimination that's still happening. We have to acknowledge it's happening and we need to honor those people that have been harmed in the past and we have to understand that it's difficult for people to get over things when it's still continuing to happen right so that's my vision for Canadians is that we have respectful relationships where we honor and value the other person's contribution to society whether it's indigenous uh, non-indigenous racialized from any nation you know uh it's only in valuing and respecting one another that we're going to make a difference. And for our Indigenous youth, I want them to have hope and I want them to learn the history as well because many of our youth don't understand. And that's something I always, uh, when I volunteered in the past at the Indigenous Women's uh, Homeless Shelter, Tweegan, I would work with the women and I would say to them, you know, for more than 15,000 years, Indigenous people have been thriving, strong, economically beneficial, uh, you know, thriving governance uh, structures, strong spiritual ceremonies, even rules of engagement and trade and ways of battling. And for 15,000 years, we've had this amazing success. And then the last 150 years, we've known uh, difficulties because of largely from residential schools, uh, 60 scoop day schools, other, the Indian Act, other colonial acts of oppression that have happened to us. But that doesn't define us the last 150 years. You know, that's what I tell our youth. Don't be defined by the last 150 years. Be strong and inherit the strength and success of your ancestors and walk with their courage and their resilience in your heart. And uh, don't ever let anyone try and put you down, you know, that you hold your head up. And we're a very strong, resilient people, and we have a lot to be proud of and a lot to look forward to. So, yeah. Excellent, excellent. Well said. Thank you, Teresa, for your time. And uh, you. do you have do you have anything else you want to add? Uh, did you forget something? Or uh... <laughs> how could I possibly forget something? I always <laughs> have so much to say. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I want to.
Yeah, just acknowledge the Algonquin people on whose territory we're gathered and who I am a guest because I'm not from this territory. So I want to acknowledge them, acknowledge our elders, our ancestors, and all the people that have come before and the people that will come ahead of us in the future, our, our future generations, like my our children and our grandchildren and their children, and say, Walalin, thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. We've been talking to uh, Teresa Edwards from the Legacy Hope Foundation, Executive Director and In-House Counsel. Roots and Hoots is produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. For more podcasts like this, please visit our website at legacyofhope.ca.